Thinking about automobility and the environment, a roundtable discussion about a virtual environmental history field trip on automobiles as a global commodity. I'm Sean Karaj, and you're listening to episode 17 of Nature's Past, a podcast of the Network in Canadian History and Environment. Over the past summer, the Niche New Scholars Group organized a virtual environmental history workshop called Place and Placelessness, which invited graduate students from around the world to participate in two days of discussion and review of working papers on a variety of topics in environmental history. Students from Canada, the United States, Britain, France, Japan, and Australia were all connected using Skype, Google Groups, and WordPress blog to review compelling new graduate research in environmental history. One of the hallmarks of the virtual workshop was its virtual field trip. Because field trips play such a prominent role in environmental history workshops and conferences, the New Scholars Organizing Committee wanted to somehow include a field trip component in the virtual workshop. Using a combination of the photo-sharing service Picasa, Google Maps, and Google Earth, the workshop participants created an impressive collaborative geotagged photo essay on the topic of the automobile and its impact on landscapes as a global commodity. Workshop participants were asked to upload and geotag photos illustrating the impact of automobiles on their local environments and provide brief annotations and captions for each picture. Those images were then three-dimensionally mapped using Google Earth to allow each participant to virtually travel this global commodity chain through images of the impact of automobility in all of the participants' countries and regions. Listeners should visit the show notes for this podcast at niche-canada.org naturespast for a link to the final slideshow and map for this virtual field trip to get a full sense of this innovative environmental history project. To learn more about this field trip, I spoke with some of the participants. So I'm joined now by a roundtable of graduate students who participated in the recent Niche New Scholars virtual field trip uh, as part of the Place and Placelessness uh, virtual environmental history workshop, which took place at the beginning of October of this year. I'm joined by uh, Will Knight. Hey, Sean. Colin Tyner. Hi, Sean. Jeff Slack. Hello. Lauren Wheeler. Hello. And Rosemary Claire Collard. Hi. So uh, I want to start off just asking the group, uh, first of all, what you found most surprising about the experience of participating in a virtual field trip. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start by saying uh, the first surprise was that it worked as well as it did. And, uh, you know, when we first discussed uh, having a field trip. I mean, it was kind of wasn't it wasn't um, a joke, but it was it was it was an interesting idea, right? How do you how do you field trip online? And the fact that we had so many people uh, contribute pictures and comments was, I think, um, for me, one of the surprises that that people actually bought into the whole idea and and participated. Uh, the way they did, and I have another surprise, but I'll let I'll let other people chime in. Uh, just on the same note um, or a similar note, I I found that I was surprised by um, how even though we were all so spread out and we're writing about different places, and I've never met any of you before, 
And even though it was virtual, it still felt like something that we really all did together. That was um, like a real group effort, even though it was with all these people I've never met. I was really impressed by um, the Google Earth function. When, uh, when you first set up the gallery on Picasso, I, I really enjoyed the kind of variety of photos and the commentary, but I didn't expect how well it would work with the Google Earth function once you set up the, uh, the slideshow on the Niche website. Um, it really was an added feature that helped um, get a lot of spatial context for the images that would have been a l really hard to convey through just through captions. or um, So you could really get the information that you wanted about the area surrounding each photo and really get down to street level or pan out to a larger kind of bird's eye view. I really enjoyed that feature, thought it added a lot. Yeah, and I encourage listeners uh, who are able to go and take a look at the virtual field trip website, which we'll link to in the show notes, to, to switch on the Google Earth function and take a look at what Jeff is saying, where you can drop into the street level and see where photos were taken in relation to buildings in particular urban areas. And Will, you said you had another surprise that stood out to you. Well, yeah, that, it, it kind of goes to, to Jeff's point was uh, like Google Earth. I mean, that for me completely animated the entire discussion. But um, we started to dip in, I guess the other surprise was we started to dip into the field trip even before, you know, the plenary session, went, which was which was our scheduled uh, period to actually talk about the field trip, but on the Friday night session where we dealt, with, we had two papers, fisheries papers, um, you know, locate uh, and their their geographic locale was Ontario and Australia. We went to the uh, the field trip to locate ourselves, and that was, I mean, that that was for me a really important. Um, element of the discussion, so it was it was preceding the field trip, but it was really drawing on that 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 uh, the field trip contributions and in Google Earth that just completely blew me away. So field tripping is obviously a really big part of environmental history conferences. The ASEH every year at at the annual meeting of the American Society for Environmental History, there is a day of field trips. Uh, Colin, can I ask you if you thought the virtual field trip um, effectively simulated uh, the experience of an ASEH field trip, or was it something different for you? Um, well, actually, unfortunately, I've never been on one of the ASEH uh, field trips. But um, I wanted to add to uh, Will's comment about the the use of multimedia or or different applications when when talking online. I think it's the first time I've been in a seminar format where Google Groups or Google Maps wasn't a distraction. Um, and so it actually really helped, at least um, in terms like when you're at a conference and someone's talking about a particular place, there's off, it's often difficult to imagine what that place looks like. Um, but in this case, it was very easy to figure out where um, people like David Harris in, in Victoria were talking about, in, in Victoria, Australia. Um, what place they were actually talking about, as well as um, as Michael DeVecchio's um, paper on the areas up north, it was much easier to understand what he, um, what places he was talking about with uh, the use of Google Maps. So it's a direct um, uh, geo geographical aspect to um, uh, the conference, which I think was useful for an environmental history conference. Yeah, it gave you a, a better sense of place, um, which was nice because it totally uh, dovetailed with the theme of the conference itself. 
Lauren, did you find that the virtual field trip uh, simulated a field trip experience or was this something entirely different than a field trip? I think what we did with this virtual field trip was was kind of go beyond the the expectations of, of what you can do with a virtual conference um, here. Niche puts on chess every year, which is very much a field trip based um, workshop. And and while we didn't get to go and see the places in the same way you do when you're at a conference, whether it's ASEH or Niche's chess. Um, I think the discussion that we had around the images that were posted, around the map that was created from the geotagging of the images, was very beneficial in, in some interesting ways. And I think um, the discussion in the plenary especially of the kinds of pictures we'd all put up, um, there's lots of pictures of roads, not a lot of pictures of where the materials that power the cars or build the roads or are the component parts of the cars come from, um, that discussion was very, very interesting. Well, let's uh, shift gears here, no pun intended, to uh, talk about the theme of the field trip. Well, maybe the pun was a little bit intended. Um, the New Scholars Group wanted to trace a global commodity to see how common commodities are represented across the world, given that we had participants in the workshop from Australia, Japan, France, uh, different parts of Canada, and the United States, um, and the United Kingdom. Um, I want to, and you, you chose to look at automobiles and automobility as the, uh, the the automobile as the global commodity that was linking all these places. So, in what ways has the automobile as a global commodity homogenized landscapes around the world? Was there a common landscape aesthetic that was associated with automobility that you saw in the photograph collection, the geotag photograph collection that you produced? Uh, absolutely, Sean. Um, uh and I mean, there was there was two interesting things about that. One was you know the ubiquity of like the streetscapes, right? The, the common features, street signs, uh, lights, all the all the furniture of uh, you know the the, uh, the the road landscape that we're all familiar with. But what was interesting was uh, for me on reflection is is how the that sort of ubiquitous. Uh, street landscape gets situated into actually very different uh, geographical locales. Like those landscapes are different, like Toronto and Melbourne. You know, those are very different. They're different. Uh, they're different landscapes, but they share a similar road patterning or you know urban layout. So it was it was it was sort of watching or seeing um, that flip back and forth, like something that was familiar in a very unfamiliar landscape like, like Melbourne. Rosemary, what did you find common in the photographs that all of the participants uploaded? Um, well, definitely, um, like, like Will was just saying, um, it was hard not to be struck by the, the, how common roads and the sort of sign infrastructure was. But then again, like Will, I, I was sort of interested and delighted to see how those sort of homogenous landscapes were coming up against very heterogeneous landscapes hmm. and how the heterogeneity of mountains and rivers and so on would, would often shape the um, streetscapes, but also disrupt them, um, for the forest fire photographs and, and so on, where you see the diversity of the landscape popping up in unruly ways, I guess. 
Jeff, tell us a little bit about some of the pictures that you posted from um, uh, the Sea to Sky Highway. Yeah, um, I, I kind of missed the whole commodity chain aspect of the, the field trip when I first posted my images. I wasn't so much looking for images that portrayed a specific aesthetic, although you can definitely find that there. I was kind of more thinking about the impacts of the landscape and how they, they've uh, kind of challenged the road building kind of road building projects. Um, but you can definitely see, I mean, there's the first one I show of the Sea to Sky Highway in uh, under construction with the, the pedestrian overpass and then the very, very clearly uh, designed viewscape of Mount Garibaldi as you kind of approach Squamish. Um, definitely the panoramas are, are in mind there. And as I found parallels, looking at the images, parallels between kind of uh, mountain panoramas from my images and, and from Montana as well, compared to how storefronts and other signages lined up parallel to roads um, and how landscapes either are designed or evolve with the, the automobile's perspective in mind. And that's interesting, so, those, the commonality between photographs in Montana and photographs from coastal British Columbia and I think of how different those were than the pictures that Colin posted from Japan. Colin, mm -hmm. can you tell us a little bit about your pictures and how the images that you captured uh, stood out from some of the other images in the group? Well, I mean, I was I was saying that the irony about the pictures that I took was that I traveled by train um, to take the pictures. <laughs> and um, once I got to the intersections, I found that I, I took more picture, less pictures of the cars than I took of pedestrians and how they occupied those um, crosswalks, um, uh, overhead crosswalks um, and roadways um, during weekends. Um, and actually, I found it really difficult to take really good pictures because um, I w since I was at street level and people were often uh, frequenting those uh, spaces or within um, with excess, that it was hard to take. Um, good photos and I had a lot of junk um, because a lot of the people were out of focus um, or moving too quickly um, to take a really good shot of. So I spent actually um, less of my time taking pictures of cars than the um, spaces that were produced for cars and, the, and the, how people filled them. And you wrote a and recent I, blog post on your blog about that in the context of urban life in Tokyo. Can you talk a little bit about movement in Tokyo? Because I think you capture that a little bit in the pictures that you presented. Well, um, it's the dilemma. I have to take uh, my students uh, for two field trips um, every semester throughout Tokyo. And um, I, I feel guilty about running them ragged um, for about <laughs> two hours um, because we spend most of our time um, not in the place that we want to visit, but traveling to those places, um, going um, along streets or along sidewalks through under uh, underground walkways. And so, um, at least, um, I feel the, the changes to the landscape that have been made for cars and how centered the landscape is on cars. And so that's what I wrote my blog post on. So in what ways did the photographs that were presented in this collection illustrate how uh, the environmental impact of the automobile has influenced human societies and cultures? Colin has given us a good example of uh, the way in which movement and transportation shapes uh, Japanese urban life. Um, did anybody else see some illustrations of how our human societies have been influenced by landscapes constructed to accommodate uh, automobile traffic? 
Well, I'll, I'll just say that uh, the photos that I took actually um, uh, involved automobile use without roads. So my contribution was uh, of uh, four by four uh, vehicles in Iceland, and there's a, a big culture there of of off roading four by four. Uh, you know, you go off on the weekend and you you uh, you travel across the lava fields and uh, pick out trails or just just go off. So it, that was that for me. That was um, sort of the interesting thing that I was exploring. In in and what what drew me to to taking photographs in Iceland was that that culture and of uh, of roadless of uh, roadless automobility. So that I w- I was coming at it really from a different different angle, different perspective. Yeah, those were very interesting pictures, the, uh, the off-road vehicles in Iceland. Um, did anybody else uh, get a sense that uh, automobility was influencing um, human societies and cultures in certain ways? Um, uh, definitely the photos um, and the little bit of research I did when I was up in Alaska and northern BC, um, I found that especially because I was focusing on the impact of vehicles on animals and um particularly roadkill and just the sort of um well some of the infrastructure that's been developed to accommodate animals um like corridors and so on um but um largely since those are not particularly effective and not very common um so many animals are killed and the way that a uh, lot in Alaska now moose especially have been brought into these networks where um, people on a list will receive roadkill moose meat uh, distributed by by the this organization in Anchorage. And there are a few places in Alaska that do this. So I thought that was sort of an interesting way that human society has adapted to this environmental impact of the automobile, which is that it kills animals. And now those dead animals are starting to be used for, for food. Lauren, you mentioned that uh, very few of the photographs dealt with the automobile as a commodity necessarily in terms of what are the material inputs that go into the manufacturing of cars. I added one picture of an offshore oil rig in Santa Barbara, California, uh, but I think you're right. Not a lot of the pictures dealt with the materials that went into making cars. Um, What were some of the pictures that you were maybe hoping to see? Um, Being here in in Alberta, the the tar sands are a very big part of our environmental um, debate at the moment as they are in a lot of the world and my own research about environmentalism in in western Canada um, I came across information about how the tar sands before they figured out how to get oil out uh, or to get the bitumen out of the sands um, they simply took the sand itself and used it as a road top throughout the prairies because it was resistant to freeze-thaw, which made it an an excellent road surface um, in the early part of the 20th century. And I kind of been hoping that we'd see some pictures um, of where the the things that go into powering our cars, to making our cars um, come from. And and that was something we didn't see. I'm partially to blame for that. There's a number of oil refineries here in Edmonton, <laughs> and being a carless individual, I never managed to get out there and take any pictures of them, even though I do ski in the, the light of the refineries in the winter. 
It, yet, yet it took. That's what I enjoyed about the field trip was that it actually took you know some some different paths than what we thought or what we intended it, it would it was going to be. So I re- I enjoyed Rosemary's uh, you know uh, little pathway into into roadkill. Um, and uh, I, I didn't get the opportunity. I had a, a friend who did a series of photographs of, of roadkill, and uh, it was uh, this, anyways. It was it, I would have had like very graphic pictures of roadkill to add to that, but uh, perhaps it was perhaps it was it was best that that didn't happen. But so we've already discussed this a little bit. But in what ways did the photo essay that ended up getting produced? Um, ultimately end up representing the individual photographer's relationship to automobility. <laughs> I feel like as a whole, what, what this really reflected was um, kind of this common way in which we all move around our environments. Um, there were a good number of pictures that showcased not automobiles, but automobile alternatives. A number of pictures from, from Paris, um, some there was one or two from Melbourne which showed public transit and bike lanes mm-hmm. and and all these things that aren't cars and aren't um, kind of that ideal idealized individual automobile, um, which I found to be very, very interesting, as well as um, some of Jeff's photos definitely show this, the, the debate around... Um, where roads go and and then also wills with the off-roading in Iceland about you know, where we want to take our automobiles so it was it was a very interesting uh, kind of commentary on the individual interaction with the landscape around them but also uh, this very common way that we have in industrialized western nations um, I include Japan in, in that um, for you Colin uh, the ways that we, we do move around is, is very similar and, and almost universal given um, the role of the automobile in all of our lives. And yet it's interesting that this group took very few pictures from inside cars. I think there are <laughs> only one or two pictures that are taken from inside a car. It is dangerous to do that while you're driving. <laughs> that could be why we don't have pictures inside cars, but... Uh, Well, maybe that's a good place to leave it then. Um, I want to thank all of you for uh, sharing uh, with listeners your experiences with the virtual field trip, and I encourage listeners to go and take a look at what was produced, both the photo essays, uh, the commentary and comments, and, of course, to take a look at the geotagged map with all of the pictures and the Google Earth technology used to give us a three-dimensional representation of where these photographs were taken to illustrate the impact of the automobile as a global commodity. I want to thank everybody for joining me. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Colin. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Lauren. And thank you, Rosemary. This was a great conversation. Thanks. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, Sean. Nature's Past is produced with support from the Network in Canadian History and Environment. This episode was made by Jeff Slack, Lauren Wheeler, Will Knight, Rosemary Collard, Colin Tyner, and me, Sean Karaj. Music for Nature's Past was licensed by Creative Commons. For details on the artists, please take a look at our show notes at niche-canada.org slash naturespast, where you can also download new episodes, subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, and leave us messages. Please let us know what you think about the podcast, and don't forget to rate this podcast and write a short review on our iTunes page. 
You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash naturespast. If you have any ideas for new episodes or you want to send me some feedback, contact me through my website at seancourage.com and you can always get the latest information on events in the environmental history community from the Niche website at niche-canada.org. And you can find out more about the topics we discussed on this podcast on our show notes page. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next month with another episode of Nature's Past.